Before uh, these next three weeks, before we begin our series on Ecclesiastes, I'm going to be taking three weeks where we'll be looking at the concept of the idea of what it means to grow in grace. And what does that kind of phrase mean? What do we mean by that? And so we'll be in Titus 2, 11 through 14 for the next three weeks. And so by segue this morning, though, I want to look to another passage and read it to you. It should be here on the screen, Romans 7, 4 through 6. So Paul wrote to Titus, and this is what he was also writing to the Roman church. This will be a good segue to what I think Paul was trying to, uh, in, our, in our passage read this morning, a segue is to that. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Now look, you see that idea, what an unusual concept, that Christians die to the law. Doesn't that seem weird? I thought the law is what we're supposed to do, obedient, right? Be to that. An unusual concept. We're not going to be looking at all of the purposes of God's law, but I want you to see that. He says that uh, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. There's a moving away from the law and belonging to God, to whom has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. Now look there, you see the verse 5, it says, while we were living in the flesh, our passions were aroused by the law. What does that mean? So the law comes and it condemns us, right? It shows us perfection where we're off. So if you have ever, somebody told you something to do and you kind of go, I don't want to do it now that you told me to do it. That's what he's talking about the law does to people, all right? So it arouses our sin. It points it out and do it. So then we get to verse 6, but now we are released from the law Having died to that which held us captive, talking about our flesh and our passions held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So let me just say this. A Christian serves in a new way, a way of the Spirit, and it's not the written code. Now, that written code is referring to the moral law, the command, the mosaic law of God. And so he's saying Christians don't serve according to the written code anymore. They serve in a new way. So being a Christian or salvation is not living under the written code or the law of the Moses. I know that sounds odd, but there's a new way to relate to it for God's people. And so here's what I think, and I'm very passionate about. Um, I think that many, many people who are followers of Christ or Christians have come to faith and understood that their salvation was by grace alone. They actually have been taught that at some point. That was not something they could earn. They understood that God saved me not according to my works, but according to his mercy and by his grace. I stand on Christ alone. But many people, I believe, think and function. They know that the way they were saved was by grace. But now they don't understand that the very grace that saves us is the same grace that we grow deeper in and never leave. It is, um, maybe to say it another way, is that we, we say, I understand my salvation was by grace, but it's kind of like, I guess the Christian life is, I mosey on over here to the Ten Commandments, and my job's now to just kind of figure out how to do this the best I can. And we move back under the written code, and we have a, like, so what, what I'm offering to us in these next three weeks is that the very gospel and the grace of God that saves you, you never leave it. You grow deeper in it. And it will teach you to relate to God's commands in a right way. But Christianity is not living under the written code. It's in a new way, a way of the Spirit. And that segues us to our passage this morning. Let me just at least say this. If you are, came here today, and maybe you come to church, and this is the way you think about coming to church. It's like, you know, I need to come to church. 
I really come and I know, I know some things I need to know. I'm not doing well and I just need Shane this morning to tell me what to do and what I'm not doing well and tell me what to do. That's the way you primarily come. We're like, I bet I'm, they're gonna, I got a brace for something I'm going to do. Then you probably are living under the written code. All right? If you, if God's laws and God's commands feel burdensome to you, you're probably not walking in the new way. You're living under the written code. Uh, if you feel like God is always wagging his finger at you, that, you, that there's a, his posture towards you is that primarily, this is my struggle, his, his posture with me is kind of, kind of primarily a struggle of frustration, that I'm never doing what all I should and all that I can. If that's the case, then you're leaning towards living under the written code. If you felt distant from God or some old besetting sin may have come up, reared its head in your life recently, and you think, I need to read my Bible and go to church and do a few things before I ever go talk to God about it, then you may be living under the written code. If you're always negotiating with God, if I do this, will you do this? And God, if you'll just do this, I promise I'll never do that. That's the way of the written code. If you feel insecure, probably those moments that you feel it have moved back under the written code. If you find yourself very critical of others and yourself, then you moved under and leaning towards living under the written code. If you never feel like you can do enough, if you've had a bad or difficult things going on in your life, and yet you're frustrated with God because you know you've been living an obedient life. You're like, why are these things happening to me? Why is my body going, things happening to me in this way? Why? I'm sorry, that really is moving towards the written code, not the new way of Christ. If you're defensive and difficult to talk to, or, or it's just no one can really talk to you about your weaknesses or your mistakes, if you... If you live that way, if you're hard to approach, whether you know it or not, you live according to the written code. And if you're so fragile and self-defacing, the opposite kind of pity that no one can ever talk to you, you just kind of always beat down, then you're probably living under the written code. So I hope in three weeks those resonate with you that we begin to see that there is a new way that God has called us to live. And we are prone every day to gravitate towards living and in, in, in relating to God under the written code and not according to His grace and His mercy. Listen, we learned in the man's weekend, you guys remember this, what we learned about the gospel, that the gospel actually lifts you up in a way without uh, inflating you. And the gospel also, well, also humbles you in a way without defeating you or deflating you. When we said that statement this weekend, this past weekend, or last, last weekend, it's a gospel way. And so, uh, so Paul gives more insight to Titus about how, so he makes a statement in Romans to the Roman church. It's a beautiful chapter. There's a lot there going on. But about the written code versus the new way of the Spirit, which Paul gives more insight to Titus in our passage about how to live in a new way. And that's the way of grace, not the law, grace. So maybe what to say this morning to you is that you need, whether you know it or not, you need more grace than you know. 
You need more, you need to hear more about it, more what it is, and that it abounds and it's full. You don't need necessarily what you think you might need is law and more things to do. You don't need that. And people, when they start talking about the grace and how great it is and wonderful it is, everybody gets nervous. They're like, oh my goodness, we're going we're gonna to let everybody have a pass and do whatever they want to. Grace, 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 grace. No, just stop that. Shut up. The passage actually we're looking at says that, in Titus, actually says that in the end, we're zealous for good works. And it's going to teach you how to change. So the grace of God, what you think it produces, that it's a pass to do everything, it actually produces the opposite. So that, so that tells us that we need to elevate the grace of God in a way, and who he is, and all he's accomplished, so that you and I might live in the new way that we've been called to live under, and not in the old way of the written code. So we'll, this morning, we'll kick off by just saying, what is grace? Answer three questions. Um, what are the different types of grace? I know that's an odd one. What are different types of grace when we get to that one? And what does grace do or accomplish? Those are the three questions we'll answer this morning. What is grace? How, are there different types of grace? And what does grace do, or what does it accomplish. And I, I just want to vulnerably say to you that as I've looked at this this week and again in preparing that I, Titus 2, 11 through 14, maybe no verse has had a greater impact on me personally in the scriptures. Now all of scriptures God breathed, but it's one that has radically and always I go back to for my own heart and walk with the Lord. And so I, 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 want, um, I want you to know that I think it's important as a pastor, that we learn what it means to live in the new way of the Spirit, the grace of God, and not under the written code. Let's pray. God, would you help us to begin this, this journey for two or three, or for the next three Sundays, and that, um, God, that we are prone to be legalists, we're prone to be licentious and run away from your law, and we're prone to want to earn our favor and relate to you. We are just prone to be towards the written code. And would you grant us from your scriptures a way um, to set us free and to live uh, in the spirit and in grace. And so, Lord, illuminate your scriptures to us and help us. Um, I pray that um, uh, your name, Christ, would be exalted as it is throughout the scriptures to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin here. Our first question, what is grace? And so well, what I want you to know this morning, the grace that we're talking about, all right, verse 11 tells us it's the grace of God. It's just not any grace. This is God's grace that we're talking about. You see that in verse 11? So it's the grace of God. And, um, uh, and so there's many definitions of it. We're going to, uh, you know, you've probably heard the Webster, I think, dictionary definition of unmerited favor of God. We'll see that. There's, we should have a slide there. But, but I want to operate this morning as we look at the grace of God. Here's a fuller kind of a systematic understanding of grace, my favorite over the years, from a guy by the name of Jerry Bridges, uh, who, from his book, The Discipline of Grace. And um, here's his definition of grace. I think it's fuller. So unmerited favor is true, but I like this. God's favor in Christ to, do, to those who deserve his disfavor. So notice that it's God's favor, but it's not just, he doesn't just say your sin doesn't matter. It's actually in Christ that his favor is given to us, that we're covered with his grace and his mercy. And it's the, only for the Christians, only if you trust in Christ that that favor is given to you, right? So it's God's favor in Christ to those who deserve is disfavor. Now, the word in the Greek there, grace, that we see in our passage that's mentioned, uh, comes to the word, and it's, a, um, it's really a word that kind of a state or 
um, a state of kindness and favor towards someone, often with a focus on the benefit to being given to an object. So the idea of just that it's, it's not, maybe you've heard people say mercy is God withholding what we deserve, like we've earned something and he mercifully doesn't give it to us, like we've earned death. But grace is the idea of giving, and that's rooted in the Greek understanding of the word is that it is a grace whenever it talks about God, it's God giving something, a bountifully doing something that offers through his kindness to his people. It is unearned and it's unmerited. It's an extension, a gift, a benefit, a credit. It's words of kindness and benefits and it's blessing to God's people. So that's the grace of God. That's what we mean. So have that in your mind, the unmerited favor of God, or think of it this way, that um, God's favor to, the, to those, God's favor in Christ to those who deserve disfavor, which is all of us. All of us deserve his disfavor. All right, you got it? That's what grace is. Now, we'll look to the second one. Are there different types of grapes, or what are the different types of grace? And so, the answer to that question, I know that you think, wow, he's going off the deep end. The answer is no. In one sense, there's no other kind of grace. We're talking about the grace of God. But it's sort of different, in a sense. So let me explain it to you from our passage here, which you'll see here um, in our passage, what some theologians, what we see in our passage, call the, present, pa- the past, present, and future grace of God. And we see that kind of in phases. Now, the reason I want you, when you see these phases, and this may be a new concept, that you think there was a past grace and a present grace and a future grace, it makes you think, oh my gosh, is it, is it a process or something that I can lose or it's still not really secure for me? So no, that's not the case. It's really all of it is grace. So, this, so think of it this way. God's grace brings salvation. It brings a lot of things to you, and it does uh, a lot more to you maybe than you think. And so um, uh, the types of grace we even maybe would see here, it doesn't mean it's earned, but that, that it's a past, present, and a future. Um, <laughs> Titus 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation. You see that? Uh, I'm going to quote NIV sometimes, and this is ESV just because NIV is entrenched in my head. Over the, I'm not trained yet good enough in the ESV. But the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. So it brings salvation to us. See that? So salvation, grace, it, grace of God brought something to us. All right, now you notice in verse uh, 12 that the grace of God, uh, in the NIV, it actually puts the word it teaches or it trains us, but the ESV chews it out because it's implied. So the grace of God brings salvation, but then it's also doing something else. It's training us. And then um, also in verse uh, 13, um, it is uh, also going to bring us something one day, right? That while we wait, there's a future grace that is coming. So if you've been saved, you have uh, what God brought to you, whether you know it or not, is he brought to you, and we're going to look at the next couple of weeks, he brought to you forgiveness of sins. He brought to you the justification or the record of Christ to you in the courtroom. He actually adopted you as his children and brought you into that and regenerated and gave you a new heart. He brought all those things to you. Now in the present grace, as you're living, those things that he brought to you are going to teach you something all the time. While you wait for the fullness of his grace to one day bring glorification. That's either when we die or when Christ returns. So here's what I want you to know. Through a follower of Christ, today you live, if you've trusted in Christ, you are always living in present grace. In this time period, what some call sanctification, where God has saved me and from his grace, and I wait for his future hope of his glory. All right, and that's the present grace. Now, I, um, I want to offer, uh, if you don't not follow of Christ, um, you'll see there that, uh, that the grace of God has appeared. You see that language? Appeared there. One thing that appeared is telling us it's referring to Christ. 
So you're not sure we are in self, as a Christian, and you're not sure, I don't know if I'm in present grace. I don't know if, if grace of salvation has ever been brought to me. Well, it's appeared, and here's how salvation uh, is brought to you. It's by grace. And I would offer you, if you're not sure of that, to trust in Christ. For Ephesians 8, 9, 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It's the free gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. So if you're not children or people are wondering, if you're like, I don't know if I have this salvation, the way it's received is by trusting in the one who has appeared. All right? But you and I live in present grace. So what I want you to, in your mind, think about what does it mean to be a Christian? In one sense, what I think Paul is saying for you and to me is that I want you to think of yourself in present grace. What does that mean? So what I mean is, think of, I, I do, this is what I want you to think about the Christian life. Something has been brought to me, and it's teaching me something. And also, I have a hope of something that sustains me as well. It helps me in my waiting. That's where we live. We live in the present. And so the past is doing something to me, and the future of the fullness of grace is doing something to me. Does that make sense? That's what I mean by the types. It's not really a type. It's all capital G-R-A-C-E, all that's grace over us. But now we live in the new way in the grace of God that's teaching us. Now, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. 14 kind of gets to Jesus Christ. It's like he remembers to kind of remind us who Jesus was, who gave himself for us to redeem us from a lawlessness and purify himself and people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you see that, that it's like a summary of what happened in past grace or summarizing the statement there. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. He brought us out and to uh, redeem us from lawlessness. He's going to change us. That's present grace. And purify for a people for himself in the future while in the meantime we're zealous for good works. It's a different way of saying all of that. But that's 14 as well. So past grace, present grace, future grace. If you're a follower of Christ, you live in the present grace of God. All right? Now, last question. What does grace do? What does this teach you? What does grace do or accomplish? Well, the first one's obvious. The grace of God brings salvation to you. No one is saved by any merit of their own. Even the ability to have faith yeah, but you're dead in your transgressions to be regenerated. God does all the saving. It's not by works. And so one of the things grace does, it brings salvation. We've looked at that. But notice what else it does. It also trains us. It's training us to do what? So the very grace that saved you, that grace is training you, disciplining you, working on you. It didn't say the law was doing that. It didn't say your pastor was doing that. It didn't say your mom and dad were doing it. It didn't tell your coach was doing it. It says the grace that brought salvation is what's training you. Now look what it's training you to do. What is it training you to do? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So what we would say those mean there is ungodliness would be behavior. It, it is. Grace is affecting your behavior. But then also, uh, and worldly uh, passions, that, there's the inward. What, what we think that means is that the grace of God is not only affecting how you behave, but we know that's not just sin. Behavior is not sin alone, right? 
Uh, sin is not behavior alone. That's what I meant. <laughs> sin is also within the heart. Where does all this bad behavior come from? Inwardly, our passions that well within us and our doubts and our faiths and, and longings and false idols, all those things. He says the grace teaches us to renounce those. So it's not just to play with them. It's grace, what it does and its power, it doesn't say, hey, let go and let God. Grace actually teaches you to renounce those things, behaviors and the passions that are within. Do you see that? Grace affects you inwardly and outwardly to say no. But not only does it teach you to say no, which is the way most people feel all the churches are coming, Christianity is, just come, we'll tell you what not to do, not to do, not to do, make you feel bad at what you should be doing. But it not only tells you, it not only teaches you to say no and trains you, but it teaches you what to say yes to. Maybe a better way to say it is that it teaches you to be the most human you were made to be. What, what the fall did to us is make us stop being human. It's contorted what we look to in worship. We were made to walk with God and be in connection with him and to love things that are beauty and relate to them in an appropriate way that they're not our salvation, but they are our taste of the one remind us of that. So what God, what grace does is it not only teaches you to say no to the bad things, it teaches you to say yes to the things that you were made for to enjoy in a right way. And notice that it's inward and it's outward. You see those first two? Self-control, there's the behavior. And uprightness, we would have the other translation, that would be the inside of the heart, to have character from within, something within. Do you see that? But then there's a third one, which is beautiful. So it's two to say no to and two to say yes. It's kind of the correction. Some, some commentators think that's the yes, but there's a third one. You see that? It says ungodliness. Or it says godliness, to live godly lives. <coughs> That one means to walk closely, near to the one who loves you. That phrase would have been understood as to be near to God. What did they lose in the garden? Remember? Walking with their God in the garden to be near to his protection and his love. So the grace of God not only brings salvation, but grace, 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 the American of God teaches you to say no to the things you should, inwardly and outward, yes, and it brings you closer to God so that you might walk with him. That's what it's training you to do. That's what it's supposed to train you to do. And then help you have hope in your waiting. Waiting for our blessed hope. It, the way it's worded and structured there in the language, the original language, is it, it's the idea is that not, not only does it, it's doing this to you while you wait for the thing that's promised. Like it's helping you in your waiting. Jeez, is that not one of the hardest things in life right now is to wait when everything's so fast, right? Well, come quickly, Lord. When are things going to, when will it ever let up? When will we not have to deal with tumors and hearts for 20-year-olds? And when will we have to stop living with the brokenness and the pain and the divorce and the struggles and all those things that are affecting all of our lives and the idols and, and the pressures? When, Lord? Produces hope in the waiting. It reminds you, as he says, as we wait for the blessed hope of Christ, it's like, and then he says, remember who did all this stuff to us. I mean, you see, it's just grace, 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 all that God has done for us. We have to learn to be trained by that. 
You have to learn. You and I, it is the job of the church to train you to live in the new way, not in the written code, where the grace of God is the thing that is training. Now, I know you're saying, well, how do you do that, Shane? We're going to look at that in the next two weeks. I'm making the argument today from the scriptures that it is God's intention for you to be trained by his grace and walk closely to him and to say no to God. It actually has a great effect that you would see that and say, I don't want the red coat. I want the new way. I understand I'm saved by it, but I also want it to have its effect on me. I want my functional living I want the way I live each day and each life match, Lord willing, not in perfection. We can't do it until heaven. That's why we can't wait for the return. But I want the way I live to be as beautiful as the way I was saved. And honestly, you want to know, in my opinion, many people now have left the church and are leaving the church because they've lived among a people who have said you're saved by grace, but the way they live, the way they relate, the way they function with everybody around them, it feels like written code all the time. Nobody wants that. I didn't. Every on the college campus, you know what we hear on the college campus, I used to encounter kids, they, they thought that the gospel and Christianity was this written code and it was about works. And so here was the two kind of people you meet on the college campus. It's still today. Either those that were arrogant and punks and thought they could do the written code, so they were hypocrites and they looked down on everybody. Or they're like something inwardly, they thought, I can't do this. Something in them knew they can't live up to the written code. And they like to heck with it. And they just start partying it up. The grace of God humbles us, and it constrains us, and it makes something beautiful to live in. So if walking with God feels not beautiful, I'm here to tell you, it is. God intends for it to be that way. Not saying it's not hard. Not saying we don't need his hope. So what does this, just looking at that this morning, this is where we'll finish. What does, what does this tell you about yourself? Like, so this is a, it's a great discipline. If you want to say, hey, I want to learn to read the scriptures redemptively, and I want to learn to preach them redemptively, I'm trying to do that. One question you could ask, so meaning that the redemption of man and God's grace and favor toward is the theme of the whole Bible. And one of the ways you can do that is just always ask the question in the passage, what did I learn about the nature of God? You can do that with thou shalt not steal. You don't believe me, but you can. What do we, but this passage, just answer this question to me. What do we learn about who we are and the nature of God just from this passage? Here's what we learn about us. We needed someone to bring us salvation. We could have never saved ourselves. We needed someone. To, someone's got to bring it to me. I'm like Isaiah. I'm toast. I'm a man among unclean lips and I... And I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, there's no way I need you to bring it. Also, what I know about is I need help in changing. I can't do it. I need somebody else and something to train me. That's all of us. I'm powerless to change myself. That's what you learn about yourself here. You also learn about yourself that you struggle to have hope. It's difficult to wait. Does that, do anybody want to raise your hand that's true of you? What does this tell us about God? He's so thoughtful, isn't he? He's so aware of what we need. This passage is telling us that he he does bring salvation, not according to anything about you, but according to his mercy. He's aware that you need saving. 
And so therefore he has come. And he also knows that you can't change yourself. And you'll do it in the old written code. And he knows that you need great help. So he's thoughtfully teaching you how his grace and his love for you ought to compel you and transform you. And he knows, he's such a thoughtful God. He knows that we're, that we are cynical and sometimes we don't have hope and sometimes we're not sure we forget where we're headed. And we have memory loss. When you see what we're learning about him and about ourselves, I just want to tell you this morning, this has always been true of him. He's always wanted to say, listen, I love you. And I want you to, to respond to that. Your obedience in your life is, is by, in essence, a response of who I am and what I've done for you. That's the essence of Christianity. It's by grace. But we just don't know how to hear it that way. We'll finish with this. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by testing, discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and perfect. I know that you recognize that verse by all the to-dos. You recognize it by be transformed, off your bodies. Heck, the title of the stinking Bible says living sacrifice. You're prone to hear the written code. But listen, this is what theologians call the indicative versus the imperative. That's kind of the thing like that God never gives you a command without reminding you who he is and his grace and his count. Indicative means to describe something that's true. The imperative would be a command. So that's just... That's extra. You can give me five bucks for that extra. All right, in the end, whatever. <laughs> but to say it in our terms that God reminds us who he is and he loves us before he ever calls us to obey. He wants our obedience to flow from our relationship and love. Not for his love and not for his grace, but because of his love and by his grace. But you and I always want to hear to the dues. Where's the gospel? You see it there, right? Verse 1, therefore, in view of God's mercy. The first 11 chapters of Romans is about the gospel. Next, Hebrews 12. Here's a verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which cleans us. You recognize it? That's the way you recognize the verse is those things, right? But notice, before he, in the midst of him calling you to obey, what does it say? Set your hope. Set your, let us run the ways with endurance. Everybody's got to do that too. Looking to Jesus. What? The founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's saying, how do we run this? We run by the founder and the perfecter of our faith, meaning that's the same language as that he brought it to us. You see that? He founded it, and he created it. He authored it. He brought it to us. That's how you run the race. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 14. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Probably said that to yourself sometimes. Some Christians have. Be sober-minded. Prepare your mind for action today. Whatever. But what does it say? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. That's how you're sober-minded. That's how you do it. Anything other than that that doesn't flow from first being rooted in the grace, understanding the grace of God, the love across there, it becomes written code. i am just got to be set in my mind today. And eventually what it produces, we'll be talking about in the next two weeks. But look, even 
I grew up doing this one. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your do. You shall be holy for I am holy. You ever tried to fight sin in that way? i got to be holy because he's holy. Be holy because he's holy, right? You feel the weight of that command? Where's the gospel? Well, I would say God's reminding you of who he is. But the gospel there is just as he who called you. How did you become a Christian? He called you forth by his grace, the same way Lazarus was saved. How did a dead man become alive? God called him. His grace is what teaches us to obey. It's what our obedience flows from. You see that? It's not just a New Testament thing. It's the Old Testament as well in Exodus when God gave the law. Remember the Ten Commandments, right? We know this. Some of you already know this. The next slide is there, the Ten Commandments, right? Be thou shalt not have no other gods before me. You shall not make graven images. But before he said all that, before God gave his law, what did he say? He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He reminded them, I'm the one that brought you salvation. I'm the one that graciously saved you. I'm the one who loved you and knew all your needs. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I came after you when you ignored me. That's why they conquered you. You were a sinner and didn't even want to be my people. But I came after you. Therefore, I give you my law. Do you see that? Christianity is living under the grace. Our problem is that we don't not know the law well enough. We don't understand the breadth, the depth, the height of God's grace and his love towards us. And we don't exalt it to each other enough. The first commandments in the Bible in Genesis 1. Remember when he said, be fruitful and multiply in the earth and subdue it? But before that, what did he say? It says he blessed them and then he spoke to them. The first commandments to Christians were God blessing them. It was flowing out. He blessed them. He put a benediction over them. These are my people. I love them. I've created them to walk with me in the garden. Now I'll do what I say. Going back to our passage. May we finish with Christ. Going back to Titus, Titus 11. You see that language there for the grace of God has appeared? That word there in the Greek for appeared was always, Paul only used it whenever he was announcing Christ's coming. Okay, so whether his triumphal return or that he had come on the scene, he's appeared. It's the same word that's kind of used in that fashion throughout the New Testament. But for here, he uses personification. Grace is Christ. See how he plays the words there? Our grace is found in the person who is gracious, who graciously saved us. Walking as a Christian is not the written code. It's a relationship with the person who is grace that brought salvation to us. So here's the application. I want you this week to begin thinking about what does it mean to live in present grace? You're like, golly, my life, I need to, I've got to figure, just the idea that how is the gospel teaching me, and what, how is it affecting me in the future and the past? Learning to walk with God is learning how to let the future hope and the past grace affect us today. That's hard to do, but just begin thinking that way. You're going, well, how do I do that? We'll start looking at that the next couple of days, or the next couple of Sundays. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we see your, um, your grace, Father, would you help us to... Um, um, 
help us to see the beauty of your grace towards us in the person of Christ. And God, I'm, I confess, I, I go back to the written code. That's every day. It's a natural boot up for me to just want to live in this world according to the written code. And, and yet I, I struggle to believe your grace. But would you grant us as a church and as pastors and leaders and people and even the Roma that would become our church, that we would be a church that the grace of God is what's teaching us, that the people would literally say, you know, it, their lives are changing, but it doesn't feel like some kind of militant thing. It's actually more powerful than that. It's actually grace is changing lives. And they, that people are, just do a work, God, that radiates your goodness and grace in us and through us. And I just want to pray, I want to pray right now that even in this moment, this morning, I know there are people that need to be set free, and they, they're realizing the moment, you know, the way I relate to my God and King is like it's a written code. And I don't see him as a father who loves me and a father who adopts me. Would you help him and help us, young and old, to live in the new way? And we're very, we need much help, God. Have mercy and help us to do it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.